This is Alfred Hitchcock speaking. In the past, I have given you many kinds of suspense pictures, but this time I would like you to see a different one. The difference lies in the fact that this is a true story, every word of it, and yet it contains elements that are stranger than all the fiction that has gone into many of the thrillers that I've made before. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. Uh, we are cruising right along on the Shamley Silhouette, uh, ever getting to our end point, uh, which will be coming sometime around August um, or early September, depending on how time fluctuates in this uh, realm we find ourselves in in the year 2020. Uh, but we're going to cruise along now uh, up to this point on the show. We have managed to talk about Hitchcock with nearly every member of the Real Nerds podcast, our parent show that uh, graciously hosts us on the feed. Um, we've managed to talk to Ryan Frost twice uh, regarding different uh, motives of Hitchcock, whether it's working with Cary Grant or his World War II service. We talked with James about Rebecca. We talked with Henry about Rope and modern impressions of Hitchcock. And we talked with Corinne about The Lady Vanishes. So we've had everybody except for one, a one, one guy who's just a big old guilty party. His guilt stems from the crime of not watching Hitchcock until this show started. Uh, and his punishment is thus that he will be forced to discuss two films that I foisted upon him. Uh, I confess from 1953 and The Wrong Man from 1956. Two films that are ridden with the theme of guilt. Um, but he has also told us that prior to anything regarding the Shamley silhouette. The only other Hitchcock thing that he was aware of in his childhood uh, was the Alfred Hitchcock Presents television show, uh, a show that gives us the Shamley silhouette namesake. Uh, so we're going to discuss two episodes of that show as well. Um, but let's bring him on right now. Uh, I bring forth the accused, none other than Real Nerds Podcast's own Bradley Haig. Hey, uh, yeah, I think it's you're the one who's making the mistake here. Yeah, no, I, well, I mean, to be fair, to be fair, it's 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 strange that after all the guests we've had on this show, I finally come across one who didn't grow up under the awe of the Master of Suspense. Um, I would like to, before we um, uh, jump into the films here, I'll go by this briefly with you. Um, so up until this show started, you had not watched a Hitchcock film. And in the midst of this show's beginnings, you saw your first two Hitchcock films, which were? Uh, North by Northwest and Psycho. Yes. And, um, but prior to that, no other Hitchcock. Um, I think for contextual sake, um, uh, if you want to tell the audience, what, what was your cinema diet growing up and how did that kind of, uh, uh, dictate your path into what inspired you or what you would choose to watch uh yeah i i grew up on a uh, on a mainstream diet of movies um i did have my uh classic film phase in college when i started getting into filmmaking or video making because my college did video not film yeah um 
so I, you know, I, I binged a couple of the classics like Casablanca and Gone with the Wind and never really found anything that like really motivated me or moved me. Like I, I respect their place in cinema history. Um, but you know, nothing captured my imagination, captured my imagination as much as like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie or Batman 89 or the back to the future movies. So, so, so basically like you, and it's, and I will say that you shouldn't feel any of the guilt that I foisted upon you in that introduction. Uh, it was mainly just because it's so convenient. But it was so heavy. (laughs) Yeah. But it's, it's consistent with the themes of the films we'll be talking about. Um, but, um, but you, um, but your, your, it's true. Your, your diet, and it, it actually shows a lot in your work too, of what, what inspires you and influences you. Uh, Brad is a filmmaker out here in Denver, in addition to being a podcaster, um, and amongst the films he's created are several for the 48-hour film project out here, uh, and also a mini-epic called Jean-Claude Van Damme's Damn Van, where Brad used uh, a, a funnier die contest to make a mini-epic uh, action, 80s action, 80s to late, early 90s kind of style action movie. So basically, you're you're not beholden to the classics like others are. Um, like Ryan and I worship at the altar of a lot of Golden Age Hollywood, and I know Ryan is, or I know uh, James is um, also subject to those as well. Uh, but so basically, what I wanted to do with this episode was not only talk about two films that d- deserve a discussion on uh, the Shamley silhouette, but also to give you two films that don't have a lot of hype around it, um, because. Uh, when you saw North by Northwest and Psycho, you weren't as enthralled with them as others. And this is not to put you on any hot spot, and I don't want anybody giving Brad any flack on the internet. Um, it's it's just that the, the, he, there's a lot of hype around those two films that he saw that can never live up to any expectation unless you're seeing it like the age of five or six. Yeah, the pop culture uh, has lampooned those both those movies so much that you know there's there's nothing to really be surprised about. Mm-hmm. So, as compared to somebody who watched those in the theater when they came out. So, you know, the, the awe isn't there. But, yeah. you know, they're fine films otherwise. They're just not, you know, they're not inspiring me to be a filmmaker. Yeah. So you're saying that I didn't influence you, Brad? I didn't <laughs> do anything to tip your brain into the world of cinema? Uh, Actually, um, I am, now that I've seen four Hitchcock movies... I'm starting to see a lot of places where up-and-coming filmmakers uh, mm-hmm. tread over Hitchcock <laughs> um, and and steal his steal his work. So that yeah. that is that is a bit inspiring. Yeah, it's well, and it's it's good to see that these films um, you can start seeing the patterns that ripple across the decades and how they manage to influence not just the filmmakers of the new wave of the '70s but also filmmakers as uh, late as literally this minute. Um, and yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing things that are like, if, if, if I had done them and not, not having watched Hitchcock, if I had just done them, yeah, I probably would have been graded as being cliche. Right. Right. Well, because you're in your, cause you're basically, it, 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 it's the phrase it's been done before or. Yeah. Uh, but like, but I would say that like, uh, what's funny about cliche and everything is, is that ultimately like, they're cliches for a reason is because like they, they are, there are tropes that manage to really um, uh, transcend time and you can still utilize or find a way to change the game on it. So 
I'd say that if you did try to do them, if you if you did your version of them, um, that you wouldn't fall under that necessary label. Um, but it is very easy to fall into that trap of uh, of going like, well, he's just aping on Hitchcock, or he's just aping on Scorsese, or he's just aping on Tarantino. So like, and the, and so on and so forth. Like, well, it, my it, point actually is, um, you know, ha not having Hitchcock, I'm like, I'm not drawing it from anything. I'm just like making it up on my own like inherently right but you know because hitchcock was there before me you know he's doing the same thing but because he's like first to the to the starting line you know he gets credit for being like doing something similar but you know it's genius it's transforming the industry yeah um so there, there's just like simple techniques i'm just like that just seems so obvious like why would anyone be like wow hitchcock yeah, it, it it's actually well. It's funny you bring that up. It's because like it's it takes somebody like Hitchcock at the forefront to be like, well, this is basically a how-to guide for filmmaking. Like it, the one of the reasons why the Hitchcock Truffaut book is so influential is because it's basically the person who was at the forefront at the first at the gate, you if you will, it basically laying out for Truffaut like, look, this is how it's done. Like this is what you do. And Truffaut adds into that the the frame by frame dissection of different parts of the films that he discusses with him. So he he in a weird way he's kind of like the forefront of cinema professors because he's kind of giving you the basic instruction guide. Yeah, but I'm just saying like someone would have got like gotten around to doing it like this, and so yeah. Yeah. sometimes the attribute attribution of of genius is just you know to because you're first. Yeah. So. Who who was on first, Brad? Who was on first? Me. I was. That comedy routine is over now. <laughs> um, but uh, well, congratulations. So, yeah. No. Exactly. I, I was really happy to get both an Abbott and Costello joke in Hitchcock's voice at the same time. It was just. It was wonderful for me. And now we're done. Um, but I, I will say though, what's interesting is that you know, if you look, if if you, if you talk to Brad about his favorite films, among the ones that he's discussed as an influence or, or as, a, as one of his favorites to watch is um, Mad Max Fury Road, which came out in 2015. And what was, what, I, what, what I'll point out is, is that that film works on very much uh Hitchcockian pure cinema method, which is the whole idea of try to tell the story with as little dialogue or dialogue cards as possible and let the, the camera speak for the, tell the story itself, um, which is, very prevalent throughout Mad Max Fury Road because there's like what maybe fifteen twenty lines of dialogue in that movie. Yeah, I remember the first like the opening night I saw it. It was like a preview show and just being like, "Is this the dialogue for this movie?" Like, not only is it scarce, but it's also bizarre. Like, um, yeah. I hadn't settled it. It's like listening. It's like uh, watching a a movie based on a Shakespeare play. Like, it takes like twenty minutes for me to settle in to the style of how people are talking. Yeah, and so I did, that didn't register with me. So this is like you know, this is punk uh, Australian <laughs> post-apocalyptic sci-fi. You know, I, I I I thought they were just being normal until I realized like, oh, this is just the characterization of the world. Got it. Yeah, and 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 you've you've talked about it before, but it, like the action sequences in that film like are are propelling the story as much as any dialogue that you have in that film. So it's a purely. Yeah. It's very much a purely visual movie. Like, there's no like, there are quotes from that movie, but they uh, are tame in comparison, I'd say, to the imagery that you see on screen. Like, that's what you remember it for primarily. Yeah, um, yeah, I, 
I remember being blown away that the structure of the movie, you know, you go on this journey and then you're like, oh, what can they possibly do for the finale? <laughs> and then their answer is, we're just going to go back to the beginning and do the whole movie over in like a condensed amount of time. Right. I'm like, oh my God, that's madness. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's, and it's staged and uh, storyboarded in pre-production like crazy the same way a Hitchcock movie was back in the era. Like if you watch the behind the scenes featurettes on Fury Road, you, you notice how much prep went into it, not just for the safety of those stunts and those action sequences, but also just what every frame was going to look like and how that was going to propel the story along. And, you know, I mean, whether or not George Miller is working off of Hitchcock as a direct influence or just the fact that this is a storytelling method that has been tried and true and carries forward, um, it, we can bring it right back to Hitchcock with establishing that theory of like, one of the, some of the best films are the ones that don't have to over explain things to you. But what's funny is, is that the films that we are going to talk about have a lot of heavy exposition in them. Um, but while at the oh, same yeah. time operating on visual um, uh, moments of pure cinema that I, I think stand out more than any of the dialogue does in the movie. Um, yeah, and, I'd never heard that phrase attributed to Hitchcock before, like going through college, you know, it just made sense to me when people said like, you know, you should try to tell the story through visuals because it's a visual medium. Like, yeah, that makes sense. But I didn't know that originated with Hitchcock. So that's interesting. I'm the OG person to bring that up, Brad. I said it in an interview and it, and it was badass. And then I, I swiped that credit for all it was worth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, um, we're not going to let Hitchcock abuse you too much on this show, Brad. Um, he only comes out every so often when there's something funny to be uh, noted. But um, we'll jump into the plots of these films here. Um, we'll start. Um, we're going to start in the year 1953. Uh, the film is I Confess, uh, directed by me, credit guy, uh, produced by also me, uh, screenplay by George Tabori and William Archibald, based on the play Nos du Conscious by Paul Antlum, uh starring Montgomery Clift, Ann Baxter, Carl Malden, Brian Ahern, O.E. Hayes, uh, and Olivia Lagarde, uh, Olivia, oh gosh, I'm not going to get her right name, but anyway, um, music by abusing D his legacy. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm I'm ruining uh, I'm I'm, a ru I'm ruining the legacy of Valette. Um But anyway, uh, music by Dimitri, music by Dimitri Tiomkin, cinematography by the legendary Robert Burks, edited by Rudy Fur. Uh, produced by Transatlantic Pictures. This is one of the last projects that Transatlantic Pictures does uh, before the company is completely dissolved and Hitchcock goes to work mainly for the major studios um, and in that process creates some of the classics that we've known today and also the ones that Brad was like, meh. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is not a bad, which by the way, please again, nobody give Brad any crap for it because... Uh, this is it's good that we got him into these two films here because these ones don't have a lot of hype on them outside of I would want to say cinema uh, cinema uh, devotee circles. Um, the film um, obviously based on the 1902 French play. Um, uh, this is a film that Hitchcock had been trying to get made for eight fucking years. I went through 12 goddamn writers. I, I don't understand how long it takes to make a fucking movie about priests. Well, one of the reasons why it would take that long uh, is because uh, this play involves a lot of 
heavy stuff when it comes to speaking about the church and Catholicism and the actions of a priest, um, which is a subject that obviously today uh, it's, it's much easier to openly discuss not only the priesthood, but also their transgressions. Um, the, the script, the script had a lot of elements that were from the original source play, uh, that were removed at the insistence of the executives at Warner brothers so that they did not get a negative reaction. And also primarily because so then that way they didn't get censored by the production code. Uh, filming took place in Quebec from August 21st to October 22nd in 1952, shot in the Quebec area, utilizing a lot of their churches. Um, the, they were originally all set to go with the script by George Tabori. Um, when the local diocese objected to uh, the, the execution of the priest character and rescinded the permission. And Tabori refused to change the script, so Hitchcock said, Fuck you, I'm getting somebody else to finish it off because I'm making this fucking movie. Eight years, George. I'm not going to let it die for you. Um, and uh, as, as we all know, Hitchcock storyboards this to death. And as we'll see, as we kind of talk a little bit briefly about the film... Uh, there's a lot of imagery in this film that deals with Catholicism and uh, the religious aspect of stuff. Um, and uh, the only thing that Hitchcock couldn't prepare for uh, properly was method acting. Method acting, courtesy of this film star Montgomery Clift. Brad, what is your uh, kind of like knowledge of like acting styles uh, when it comes to this old Hollywood versus um, the films you see today? Um, because you've... You've stated to me in the past that you know you you have a preference to one as to the other. Uh, yeah, I just um, like I said, obviously a lot of these actors at this time come from a stage background, um, so they're being asked to instead of act to the back of the theater, right. um, you know, act to the size of the frame. Right. So uh, it just feels unnatural sometimes because mm-hmm. um, they're trying to make that translation. Whereas modern movies, it very much feels like people on screen are having conversations that me and my friends have, you know, and, and you have like, what's, what's interesting about the film. And I'm curious if you noticed it is how Montgomery Clift is acting more subdued. And if anything, the camera is uh, adding to his performance in the terms of anything grandiose or over the top, because Montgomery Clift comes from the, actor studio mentality of the method acting, um, which was also carried over by Marlon Brando and James Dean. Um, Among his teachers were the director, Ilya Kazan. Uh, So Montgomery Clift is mainly working off of an internalized performance. It's mainly dealing with a lot of internal emotion that you express through subtle emotion um, and not necessarily um, the -the over-the-topness of uh, many Hollywood films of the era where the performance is bigger and broader. Um, that's not to say all films of the era did that, but when we think of older films, I think we tend to think uh, bigger and broader and a little bit more bombastic. Um, yeah, especially sci-fi movies from that era. You oh know. yeah, very much so. I mean, actually, I'll say Forbidden Planet feels a bit subtle by comparison to to other ones. Um, but uh, so I, I will say, uh, I'll ask right before we kind of jump into the the beats of the plot here. Um, watching, I confess, did you have any notion, um, of, uh, because there's no expectation of it, was there anything that kind of stuck out to you in terms of just the way this film looks? Because it's not, it's, it seems different. Every time I watch it, it seems different from anything of that studio era. Like even stuff that Hitchcock has made. Uh, definitely a lot of contrast in the shots. Yeah. Um, 
harsh harsh dark harsh white yeah um very noirish but i I think a lot of that comes from the production design too because obviously the priest is wearing like a black robe and Mm um you know the very quebec seems to have a lot of like gothic architecture yeah and it's stemming from that local from the local um parishes they were they were able to shoot in yeah yeah and so basically like and the opening of the film primarily just gives us moments of that architecture not just of the church but also of the streets around that city um this film opens up immediately uh with a murder uh somebody is dead none other than a shady lawyer uh named Villette. Um, he has, uh, he has been, he, it looks like it's a robbery except no money has been taken. Uh, and it looks as if a priest is walking away from the scene, uh, until the, uh, uh, the person who's wearing the priest cassock removes it to reveal himself to be none other than a normal person named Otto Keller played by O.E. Hayes. Um, and, uh, he runs back to the church where he runs into Montgomery Cliff's character, uh, father Michael Logan, uh, and he goes to him and he confesses to the murder of Villette. So right off the bat, we're dealing with uh, Hitchcock placing the bomb under the table, which is a man confesses to a priest of a murder. Only the priest, uh, the only the priest knows what happened. I, well, except he doesn't. There's another person who knows, which is the wife who doesn't, who chooses not to speak. Um, but we have him confess the the murder to the priest. And by the Catholic belief of confession, he is not allowed to reveal what uh, Otto Keller has confessed. Um, Now, obviously, we're dealing with this in the 1950s. Obviously, things have changed in the Catholic Church's operations. I would have to imagine that that type of uh, confession uh, bound contract would not hold sway at any point in today's legal system whatsoever. Um, And then... Uh, we we just move basically through this plot of Father Michael Logan uh, carrying around this knowledge, um, and he eventually gets tied into the murder because the shady lawyer uh, knew that he had been seeing somebody that he was in love with prior to becoming a priest. And so the whole film basically becomes uh, a situation of, will he tell the police what he knows uh, uh, from Otto Keller or will he let this uh, or will he let himself be framed for this murder in order to hold to his vows? Um, So I I guess a big question that I have for you as watching this film, when you're looking through it, you've seen other films do this kind of, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the wrong man or accused of a crime or set up or framed, um, what does it look like to you from a modern standpoint watching something like this where you don't really have an expectation walking into this particular Hitchcock movie? Uh, gosh. Um, I guess early on I thought this was kind of going to take place like in, like a whole movie entirely in the confessional booth. <laughs> well, that would be <laughs> phone booth but confessionals. <laughs> yeah. So that's the only expectation I had was like you know, that first couple scenes, like oh that's an interesting, that might be a creative interesting choice for this era to, you know, have a small scale, um, yeah, um, yeah, see, like just a, went like a bottle movie I guess. Um, right. I also started to think because uh, like one of my favorite movie recent movies is Doubt, 
Yeah. Um, which is a, you know, <laughs> notorious film on this show. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Legendary in the real news podcast, but yeah, you know, there's this, that's more of a mystery, you know, uh, this one, you, there, there really isn't a mystery. The, the only th- question is like, is he going to confess, um, and save himself or not? So, yeah. And, and the I'm, other one's kind of like a, a whodunit. Right. And, and I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not like, so you've, you've already seen two films by Hitchcock where information is placed up front or you already know the twist. And so the suspense is kind of ruined for you. Um, looking at it through this particular lens on, on at least I confess did the, did the suspense work for you? Like did him giving you some stuff up front and then kind of playing it along for that 94 minutes work for you in terms of a modern audience? Uh, not really. Um, like I wasn't really anticipating anything. I just kind of, you know, there, there's that big expositional flashback in the middle where I kind of started to check out a bit of, you know, it just feels like, I'm just following the movie. I'm not looking forward to anything. Yeah. No, it's, well, so. it, it's, I, it's with, within it providing that context of their history together. If I have one uh, issue with the movie as beautiful as the cinematography is in those moments in the flashback, um, whether it's the angled shot of her coming down the steps for, for their first embrace um, combined with that music. Um, my, 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 my primary issue with it is the voiceover. Um, if I turned the sound off, I would essentially get the story of their love and also their conflict without that, without that voiceover, or at least maybe trim down that voiceover a ton. Uh, and what, but what sticks out in this film outside of the imagery that he's using within Catholic guilt, he's also dealing with just guilt in general and uh, a frame up and, the fear of authority. And this is a theme that Hitchcock uses in all of his films. It stems back to, um, I don't know if you've heard this story, Brad, but uh, Hitchcock tells a story of when he was a young, uh, a young lad. Uh, he did something naughty and his dad brought him down to the police station. Uh, the person who was at the police station put Hitchcock in a jail cell for five minutes and said, this is what we do to naughty boys left him in the cell alone for five minutes and then just let him out. <laughs> So talk about traumatic childhood, if the story is true. Talk about traumatic childhood that brings on this fear of authority that is prevalent through his films that then gets adapted down the line into other films where we have a mistrust of authority. Yeah, uh, that's a bit extreme, but <laughs> not doesn't surprise me from that era, given uh, like domestic abuse yeah. from that time. Right. So. And, and it's and it's one of those. And, and again, there's 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 a lot of theories as to that story's bullshit or whatever. or It's like a story that he told. Um, but it, it for the purposes of the Shamley silhouette, we'll just say it's true um, because I've got, you know, little hitch down my back going like it's fucking true. All my stories are fucking true. Um, but uh, so basically with this film, he's able to not only utilize that sense of guilt and draw it out throughout the film, whether it's through. Cliff's reactions to things, um, the way uh, the, the the world seems to kind of close in on him, especially during the trial. Um, but Cliff also uh, manages to give off an, a subdued performance that Hitchcock's camera tends to enhance. Um, one of my one one moment in particular that stands out within this is um, uh, F- Father Logan knows he's about to be arrested. 
And so he uh, he's walking down the halls of the entry to the church um, and or where they're living. Um, and uh, uh, Otto Keller is walking down with him going like, are you going to tell them? Are you going to tell them? Are you going to tell them? And then the camera turns to Cliff and moves in on him, basically just holding in his fucking temper. <laughs> like with that swelled music cue that basically like just ultimately suggests the conflict between this style of filmmaking, this style of acting that Hitchcock is looking for and Montgomery Cliff's method acting. Um, I, I will say that this, this whole tension between them came to a head and I, and I, and you know, I don't know if you've dealt with this before, Brad on a set, um, but I will paint this picture for you. They're on set. This is near the climax of the film after he has been found not guilty and he's walking out um, and everybody's around him basically telling him to, you know, go home. Like, don't don't be a priest. Like, take that collar off. Um, And the direction Hitchcock gave was like, okay, you're going to look around for a minute and then you're going to look at the church because that's where my camera is going to be in the next shot. And uh, Montgomery Clift is reported to have said, well, I don't think my character would look at the church. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a situation where an actor's telling you, I don't know if I'm feeling that. Um, but it's got to be frustrating for Hitchcock, who's gone through this pure, this, this form of filmmaking that he has known for years, and then to suddenly have somebody tell him, no, that's not what emotionally works. And then just, you know, head or probably directly to, hand or probably directly to forehead, trying to understand why emotionally he wouldn't because Hitchcock's camera is absolute. Um, so I, I mean, it, it, it seems like it's a situation to me where you are starting to see the birth of what you, pref- what you have said you prefer in a, in a, uh, a, a film going experience. Yeah, obviously, um, uh, Hitchcock had the added benefit of, he was able to pay his actors. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Montgomery Cliff would eventually acquiesce. Yeah, <laughs> but I ha- I have encountered uh, yeah the whole. I think my character would do this, and because you know if forty eights everyone's there for free, it's kind of like, well, I guess if your character believes that, that's what we should do. <laughs> so yeah, there should be the, there is the addendum of money, like m- money is honey, as as the kids say, yo. <laughs> yeah. So, but so and. You know the 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 climax of the or the the finale of this film essentially leads to what I think is a rather inventive trick that I'm sure you know that, that obviously gets played down the line uh, in other films, not necessarily through the religious aspect, but more through like cop films and detective films. Um, is that Montgomery Clift never gives up the information? He never admits. He never tells the police what he knows. He draws it out of Keller because Keller just assumes that Montgomery Cliff told them everything. Yeah, uh, he just like lets him be his own demise. Yeah. Um, and it, although I feel like Montgomery Cliff could have gotten him there a lot sooner. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, what, what's funny is, is that the, the, the draw out of the information with uh, the whole context of him and Ann Baxter's relationship is a situation that you know, is meant to, it's meant to, and I think succeeds at, uh, adding depth and dimension to not just him as a character, but also his guilt. 
but there also is an expediency of like, man, this, it seems like this goes on longer than it should. Um, you know, even, and it's, I will say that one of my favorite performances in this film is by Carl Malden as the detective, um, because he, uh, Inspector LaRue is, is one of those persistent people in a Hitchcock movie that you, in retrospect, find uh, extremely frustrating <laughs> because he's, but he always finds an angle. Like what's, what's amazing of it is like, so that whole exposition scene happens that you were talking about and it all ends. They all go away. It's assumed everything is cleared up and Carl Malden has to bring up, well, anything can happen between 11 and 1130, <laughs> which is to me like one of those things of just like, we probably could have gotten to this sooner, but I'm going to fly with it because I'm, I'm getting more of the added dimension to Cliff's character in a way that I don't see in a lot of Hitchcock movies where, uh, I mean, the closest I think would probably be spellbound. Um, but this movie, you know, amongst everything, there's the, the things that were taken out. And I find, uh, this, uh, eternally fascinating what a church would find disgusting and what they wouldn't. Um, and, uh, amongst them was, uh, that the priest and his lover, um, played by Ann Baxter in the movie, in the original play, they had an illegitimate child, and the priest was executed at the end of the uh, of the original uh, script for this film. So I don't think you'd ever, ever in your life ever see that come to fruition in the 50s. They would not allow it. Um, obviously, today, with something like Doubt especially, you bringing that up is, is very poignant because that film talks a lot about the current problem with the Catholic Church in a way that this film is obviously heretofore ignorant of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, but anyway, this, um, so I guess to sum up, I confess for you, you know, what, what is your main takeaway from something like this? It's like a slick 94 minutes. It's, it doesn't have an expectation hanging over its head. Um, what, what, what would you give it as a rating compared to say what you've already experienced with Hitchcock thus far? Uh, I guess a three out of five. Three out of five. Um, so, so a little bit more above. No, about the same as like North by Northwest or um, Psycho. Okay, did you, maybe did a two and a half. Two and a half. <laughs> so you just immediately. <laughs> now, that, now that I think about it, like, well, my scale is like you know, Ninja Turtles is a five. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, North by Northwest at least has like in Psycho or uh, like mainstream classics. So. You know, if I give those a three, this one's, it's just, it's, this is like an extended episode of any other story right. in entertainment that I've seen, you know? Is it, I will say, I will ask you, I, the big one I'll ask is, is that, did you feel like there's a bit of a difference between some of the more older films that you were exposed to in terms of the acting style? Like, did you, were you seeing that difference with Montgomery Clift? Yeah, Montgomery Clift obviously um, felt more like a real, real person. Yeah. Um, even though he was frustrating like i said he could have been more motivated to solve his problems faster right um, but it just feels like he's drawing everything out because he has to get get to a hour and a half long runtime. yeah um I, I, I mean the 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 motivation that i would i would draw that to because uh, i actually I'll, I'll say i'll say up front i really like this film within the scheme of uh the whole hitchcock discussion we've been having because it's a film that gets to draw upon hitchcock's uh, themes of guilt that he strews about all of his films, but also kind of dealing with the Catholicism element of it, which is something that he doesn't 
always shoved down your throat in, uh, in other uh, moments in his films. He has Christian symbology in it, but he doesn't like he's not using it to motivate the story. And I, I found it interesting to see like what Hitchcock would do under the auspices of like I'm telling a religious story, which is which has a taboo element to it. Um, and as far as the motivations of it, I think what's interesting about this film and the one we're going to talk about next is that it's basically a character piece. It's not even, uh, it doesn't have the same kind of story scale of a North by Northwest or a psycho, even like psycho for how intimate it is with its characters. It's still kind of big, um, like bigger things are happening. This one's very small scale, very quiet. Um, this would be easily translated into like a modern, uh, low budget indie film. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. It, it, I mean, and doubt. Well, doubt's not a indie film. It's uh, it was a Miramax production at the time, but it's still smaller compared to the films that were coming out at that time too. It and feels very much like the, it feels very much like a play. Yeah. Uh, that you're watching, just you know, more three dimensional. Yeah. The difference being obviously that you can kind of jump around with that camera and do a lot more visual, uh, visually interesting techniques with it. Yeah, as you should if yeah. you're going to translate a play to the. To film for yeah. sure and it's i think that what and we've talked about this on dial in for murder as well but hitchcock whenever he's adapted a play i think he's been very very good at finding a way to draw the audience in visually in the case with rope it's the shot uh it's the one take motif of like this is all gonna look like a continuous take it's not gonna you know basically the Birdman or the uh 1917 method that we've uh, seen within the past five, six years. Um, and with this one, I think it's mainly he's making a noir film out of a religious uh, with religious elements to it in a way that yeah. not other noir films are going to do of the era. Like this too feels like a play that's been uh, translated into a, a film. So yeah, like you, I can very much just see this playing out on a stage and then yeah, as Hitchcock does a few things to make it more cinematic. So, yeah. And I think he's able to kind of what Carpenter ends up doing down the line. He creates scale out of that intimacy. Cause it, even when you have those crowds or that final scene, like it does feel bigger than uh, you're expecting it to. Like the, I think if anything, your expectation is for this to be much more quiet. And when it gets loud, it gets loud. Like it doesn't, yeah, uh, it really, it really opens up when he like leaves the courthouse and enters the crowd. And yeah, the the momentum picks up at that point and and there's just a lot of uh the, the it's one it's funny as is, is that i think with with that final scene outside of keller confessing to the crime a lot of it is primarily on a visual scale and the shots are very precise especially when keller murders his wife um obviously like it's it's one of my favorite things hitchcock does is like if he wants to implicate that a gun's about to go off he'll put the camera right on the gun even though you know you're not going to see it actually go off because of the era and the tech technology involved, you're still kind of like you're you're communicating the intent without having to show a bullet hitting her in the stomach or anything like that. Um, right. so, so in a sense, obviously, it's done to cover people's asses because production code, there's people I fucking hate. But also it's 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 a style that he used in silent cinema and carried over. And we still. We still use that today, more or less, uh, if we're trying to, like, cover up a certain action or something like that. Or if we just want to be stylistic with things. 
But anyway, though this hey, film. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Before you move, before you move on, I'm trying to like, because I watched this movie and uh, the other one like really close together. I'm trying to. I had one of the detectives. I think it was Carl Malden from this one. Yeah. Did he give you vibes of Christoph Waltz in Inglorious Bastards? Yeah. Like there's a, there's a scene where he's behind this desk and he's, I think he's interrogating Montgomery Cliff. Yeah. Um, or Henry Fonda. I like I said, there's very similar scenes in these movies. No, they, uh, no, it would be uh, Montgomery Cliff. Yeah. But he had like this. So if it was Carl Malden that I'm remembering, uh, he had like the same rhythms as uh, Hans Landa in Inglorious Bastards. I was like, wow, it's so spot on. It's, I wonder if Christoph Waltz stole from that. You know, it's it's funny you bring that up because when I was watching the film again today, that scene especially where he's taught when he's interrogating Montgomery Clift at the beginning and kind of going like, "Well, I I um in, in my line of work, I have to be able to jump from moment to moment and whatnot." It felt like a Tarantino monolo- uh, monologue by one of his characters that Waltz would have played. It's yeah, not he even he even does these like hand gestures where he taps the desk with his finger, like yeah. connecting the story. And mm-hmm. I was like, God, that's straight out of Inglorious Bastards. It, it's this is how I learned. I watched nothing but this movie, Brad. Like Quentin just came up to me and said, "Watch this, watch this, watch nothing else but this." <laughs> um, but no, it's 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 funny that like that particular kind of detect the, the flam. It's not that Malden's flamboyant, but he has definition to him. It, whereas otherwise, he would just be like some kind of regular, no face, could give a shit cop. And instead, he he has a character behind him. Like Hitchcock and the writers are clear to give him something distinctive to do. Because Malden's a terrific act, terrific actor, and he plays that scene in particular like a champ because he's basically laying into like. Look, Father, I I know this might all be malarkey, but all these things aren't adding up, and so and and it obviously adds to the suspense of like, well, does Montgomery Clift even have a clear way out of this? Even though we already know what we know, so it, I think that kind of that kind of acting coming from Malden, who also kind of you know worked his way around being more subtle than others in of his generation. I think he definitely inspires somebody like a Christoph Waltz to kind of be able to take on that mantle of charismatic, uh, can be kind of like characteristic driven detective, um, which is something obviously we've seen flourished in not just his performances, but also in stuff like Daniel Craig in um, Knives Out, where he has very particular uh, mannerisms and gestures that he utilizes in that movie as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but this film wraps, um, and uh, the, uh, the so what's this is funny that I'll bring this up before we go into the reviews. Um, Hitchcock was aware that that non Catholics might have shaken their heads, going like, "Well, why wouldn't he just expose uh, a Keller automatically? Why wouldn't he just go to the police?" And this is the question you were bringing up, and. Hitchcock said this, and I think this direct, obviously this directly ties to his Jesuit upbringing. He said, We Catholics know that a priest cannot disclose the secret of the confessional, but the Protestants, the atheists, and the agnostics all say, Ridiculous, no man would remain silent and sacrifice his life for such a thing. So, I think the answer to your question, Brad, is because since he's dealing specifically with Catholicism, he is essentially pointing out 
the dog the the irrelevance of a dogmatic law and though and so that's kind of the motivation of everything if this was literally just a uh, a de- any kind of other church the the bishop or the pastor would go immediately to the police um obviously the the way we view that uh that in uh uh integrity today is of of multiple question and uh under discretion to the hugest degree but so i think that kind of that's Hitchcock's explanation to you. I don't, obviously I don't know if it holds water with you, but <laughs> yeah, I guess like it's his movie. He can orchestrate it however he wants. But Damn right. I will. <laughs> it, it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that I'm sitting there going like, well, yeah, he can't, you know, betray his beliefs, but he could still set the guy up so that he incriminates himself. Like, right. Half the time he's just hanging back painting or, yeah, you know, not not engaging with him at all, and it's just like making his life worse. Um, right, and that, that guy was such like a such a creep anyway. Like, <laughs> it it should and it should be pointed out. You know, he is a refugee uh, who was uh, given a, a shelter by the church um, and given things to do to help the church. Um, and he is also the reason he killed Keller was because he was trying to grab the money that. Uh, would set him and his wife up with a new life, and so I think yeah, that uh, later on, later on in the movie, he kills his wife. So it's like, you know, I, I don't feel sorry for him. Like it's never really been about taking care of both of them. It's always been about taking care of himself. So I'm just like, yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah, and his, and his paranoia has also driven him to the point where he would do that. So any actual love he has for his wife left is has been consumed by the paranoia that he's feeling which is again another hitchcock trope he deals with paranoia obviously you saw it in north by northwest with Cary grant's entire character <laughs> yeah um but so um we'll jump into these reviews here this film comes out um it uh it it it, it gets pretty panned um bosley crowther of the new york times uh, my my favorite critic to 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 chomp on a little bit in terms of his ability to be pithy and at times stupid. Um, Brad, you'll be happy to know that the critic of the New York Times completely agreed with you. Uh, he said it was obviously padded and nigh suspenseless script, explaining that the only most credi- credulous patron will be worried for very long that the hero will not be delivered from his dilemma by some saving grace. And this realization, well, underburdens the situation of any real suspense. Now, he concludes it by saying, Hitchcock does manage to inject little glints of imagery and invent little twists of construction that give him that, that give the film the smooth, neat glitter of his style. Uh, shot on location in Quebec, it has certain uh, as atmospheric flavor, too, but it never gets up and goes places. It just ambles and drones along. Now, my question for you is, that a little too harsh. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's harsh. I think it's it's just naturally critical. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's like it, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty looking film, but yeah, it, it's a night it's a concept that's really kind of drawn out. Yeah, longer yeah. than it needs to be. So, yeah. um, and but uh, there were a few people who were more on the side of what uh, modern film buffs like about it today. Um, uh, the Los Angeles Times, Philip K. Screwer, uh, declared that Hitchcock had fashioned an absorbing screen drama, one of the solidest and most expertly made of recent weeks, because they were getting movies weekly at that time. Remember when we used to get movies weekly, guys? Um, 
Uh, and in his careful treatment, Hitchcock has gone deeper into human relationships than is usual with him, relying less on the physical chase or on theatrical props like trains and merry-go-rounds than on the interplay of faith and doubt to create his famous brand of suspense. So I think what the takeaway from this is is that, you know, Hitchcock, as as was stated up front, made a much more intimate film, which is probably why I enjoy it a lot more than um, others might, because it's it's specifically designed to not be too extravagant, which kind of goes against Hitchcock's motif of trying to cater to the audience or create movies that the audiences of the time are going to thrill and want to go back to and give them an experience. And this one, he's giving them a human experience and it might feel a little too uh, uh, um, uh, self-important or pious of him to do it. Um, it was um, uh, it was a favorite among the French new wave filmmakers um, and people like Peter Bogdanovich, Martin Scorsese, um, and uh, it's and it has been described by film critic Sarah Ortiz as the most Catholic film of Hitchcock's films, obviously because of it being about a Catholic priest, um, but also because of the way it's dealing with that guilt and that dogmatic law of confession. Um, and uh, so that's basically it for I Confess, and we'll move right into the next film. So a few years go by, um, Hitchcock... Uh, travels along the studio the studio realm he makes films like dial in for murder rear window uh to catch a thief the trouble with harry the man who knew too much the remake and he lands upon none other than the wrong man now let me ask you brad did you know this was did you think this was going to be based on a true story at all uh no no the, the story um uh is uh based around the life of Emmanuel, Christopher Emmanuel Balistrano, um, and the and it was also based on a magazine article called "A Case of Identity," um, and the the film essentially covers this real story um, for beat uh, beat for beat. the 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 central story of the wrong man is a man who is falsely identified for a holdup. Uh, and is put through the rigors of the justice system and attempts to clear his name. Um, the film is from 1946. Uh, it's described as a docudrama, which I think is... Uh, 36? What was that? 1956, yes. Oh, I thought you said 36. That's no, not... 1956. No, no, no. We're not going... We're not using your DeLorean to go back in time, Brad. <laughs> yeah, we should... I should say we're recording this over Zoom, so obviously uh, it's uh, there might be a little hiccup in there, but we'll get it cleared. Um, but so it's from 1956 directed by me. Um, it stars Henry Fonda and Vera Miles, um, with a supporting cast that includes amongst other people, Anthony Quayle, Harold J. Stone, Charles Cooper, John Hildebrand, Esther Milde, uh, Miniclotti, uh, Doreen Lang, Lorinda Barrett, Norma Connolly, Nirama Persoff, Lola D'Anzunio, Werner Kempler, Klempler, uh, Kippy Campbell, Robert Essen, and Richard Robbins. Um, and the um, there are also some cameos in this film by people who would go on to be bigger names, not the least of which David Kelly, K David Kelly, Tuesday Weld, Patricia Morrow, Bonnie Franklin, Barney Martin, and none other than the man who saw the Hulk naked in the Avengers, Harry Dean Stanton. Um, so kind of a loaded cast for this, this docudrama. Um, Henry Fonda, a, legend, a legendary actor of the golden age of Hollywood. 
This is the only time he would work with Hitchcock, and it's a shame because I think he works really well with Hitchcock. Um, so the the I will say that we're not going to go. We don't have to go beat by beat for this film. Um, but I want to point out. And I wanted to know what your impression of this was, Brad, because it's uh, funny that I gave you technically three things that have an introduction by Hitchcock. The beginning of this film, we open up on not the silhouette, but the shadow of Hitchcock explaining to the audience, this is a true fucking story. <laughs> so there's not he's he's basically setting you up for like in all my years, I have never told you a story that could even be in the realm of possibility. But this one is some fucking re for real shit. <laughs> um, it, like, what was your impression of that? The director just coming out and doing that? Cause obviously when we have a film today, we generally get like a based on a true story or in the case of Spike Lee's black Klansman, my favorite version of it, which is this is film is based on some for real shit. <laughs> like, what was your impression of seeing that happen at the beginning of this movie that you had no idea what was about? <laughs> I mean, for him, it seemed totally normal to me because of the the TV show. So that, I'm like, oh, that must be something he does in his other movies. So why would I question it? <laughs> and then they have that explainer card right after it. So I'm like, it's really just, it, it feels like a way to just get him in the movie because he doesn't want to make an appearance later because the movie's too real. Yeah, it's, um. He, he, this is the only time he would even speak in one of his movies. He never had dialogue with his cameos prior to this film. And so this is not a cameo so much as just like a, a, a an introduction because he doesn't my guess is that he doesn't want to insert himself into the proceedings and break from the reality because the goal of this film is essentially to uh create a form of realism. Um and so by announcing that the story is true, he removes himself from the fantasy of his uh of of any of his other films where something like a psycho where he could pop up in a cowboy hat or he could be walking his dogs and the birds. Um, this, this film was actually shot a lot, a lot of, uh, around Jackson Heights. Um, uh, and, uh, filming around New York city at that time had to be very interesting because obviously the city does, doesn't even not look like what it looked like then, uh, today, but it certainly, uh, looks different compared to what it would look like in the seventies with something like taxi driver, um, so it's interesting that he did a lot more of this on location to really create the realism behind the whole film. Um, but, you know, uh, I, there's a lot of notes that I had going through this film again and really breaking it down. Um, I guess to kind of jump through the plot a little bit, you know, Henry Fonda um, playing uh, playing our lead character of Christopher He's a night, he's a musician in a nightclub. He's, you know, basically living paycheck to paycheck. His wife needs $300 for dental work. Uh, and his wife played by Veer Miles plays Rose. Um, he's, uh, he goes to a life insurance firm to try to borrow on her policy. And that's when other people in the firm suspect him of being a person who held one of their clerks up months ago. And one thing leads to another. He gets picked up based on the suspicion that he is the guy, the cops take him on a whirlwind that includes him going store by store and having the clerks identify him. He writes a note like through the case of bad luck in the same handwriting form and to the letter of the person who handed a note to the people he was robbing. 
So they get them on handwriting and basically detail. And through the film, Hitchcock is essentially kind of encapsulating you into the fear of being falsely imprisoned, um, which is not a which is a theme we certainly not only experience today cinematically, but also in real life. Um, with uh, obviously with the different things that have been happening within the world that we live in now today, um, uh, whether it's, you know, police, you know, fudging documents and stuff like that. But um, I, I will say that uh, I, I was curious what you thought in terms of the uh, how this would say hold up to any other film that kind of goes through the wrong man uh, on the wrong side of the law and trying to prove his innocence, because this is not too dissimilar from other films you've seen, not only just through the course of real nerds podcast, but also that you've seen in general. Yeah. I feel like this subject has been tackled so much in like blockbusters now that, um, this is almost starkly different. Um, uh, I think my big takeaway watching it was just like, I, I kept noticing how meticulous it was about portraying. Like there's so much time spent on, um, quietness and just feeling like, the audience needs to feel like what Henry Fonda's going through. Yeah. Um, like whole scenes just to show you or to like make you feel as an audience that he's being um, abused and betrayed by the system. Yeah. Um, Cause the story is not that deep. It's like a lot of the, the movie is just, you're seeing scenes of what happens um, in detail when something like this occurs. So, right. Um, which I would, I would have to assume based off of Hitchcock's fear of the police and the stories that he's told over the past, obviously this is an attempt to, uh, realize that fear point for point, like basically beat by beat. And you're right. Like the majority of this film, when it's not going into more of the expositional, forms uh, of the script written by Maxwell Anderson and Angus McPhail. Um, it's, uh, it's primarily utilizing the music and the imagery to give you the feeling of you are, you are in Henry Fonda's shoes. And he actually does this a lot in the literally like there's that whole scene on the bus where it just keeps cutting back to shoes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he gives you a lot of POV, which is another Hitchcock stock and trade that he didn't obviously birth that, but he, he uses it primarily in his films because he wants to put you in the voyeur seat. Um, and it's particularly with this film, he manages to create the illusion of what it's like to kind of go through that whirlwind. The most obvious of the shots by Robert Burks being uh, when he's in the jail cell and the camera starts spinning in a circle and kind of just going around and around and around to indicate that dizziness. Um, yeah, that's another, like film schooly thing that I kind of scoffed at of like, yeah, this probably seemed really cool <laughs> in 56. <laughs> but if, if someone in film school did that today, it would be like, Oh God, come on, dude. Yeah, yeah. Don't be, don't be so literal. You, you have to understand, Brad, you, you all you'll have to understand is, is that at the time, this was our version of that avatar shit. Like this was bigger than 3d, but it was just Robert Burke swinging that camera around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, like it, what, what's funny is, is that for all the uh, imagery that he does that may not hold up today in terms of that kind of shot process, there's a lot that still works. Like when he's in those prisons, he's going low angles. He's he's flat out giving you the impression of being sunk into the madness of 
the, not just prison, but also his, uh, his, his, in, him feeling his innocence and being overburdened by other other people's assumption of guilt, and the the movie. And it's funny; it turns into a detective movie in the middle of the film, uh, where him and his wife uh, Rose basically go on a detective story to find their alibi, um, and it only happens for like a good twenty minutes. Because what we really get from Vera Miles's character is that she's driven mad by the fact that no one believes her husband, that her husband is going through this. All leading to a confrontation between those two um, after he's been put out on bail and trying to find his alibis um, where she is driven completely insane. And I think another part of what Hitchcock is uh, working towards in this is to also examine the lives that are affected by uh, mistaken identities like this or the miscarriages of justice um, and seeing the, the different victims of this circumstance because it's not just the person in the cell it's also the people around him um, yeah the um, can we talk about uh, Henry Fonda and Vera Miles for a second yes like, we as can a couple yeah um, so first thing before the movie started um, I haven't seen a lot of Henry Fonda movies so Initially, I thought that was Peter O'Toole. You know, it's funny. When I looked at Henry Fonda in this movie, I didn't think Peter O'Toole. I was just like, oh, my God. Willem Dafoe is like a is like a Buddhist monk who just travels from life to life. <laughs> he and then the second that, thing was. Yeah. He has that jawline that kind of looks like Willem Dafoe. <laughs> yeah. And then the second thing was like, I think maybe 10 minutes in the movie, I started going. He seems like his face is really old. So I looked up his uh you know, date of birth and everything. And he was 51 in that movie. Yeah. And Vera Miles is 27. Yes. Yeah. This is so what's what, when you bring that up, casting choice, you know, well, so Vera Miles, story, uh, in terms of, um, being in this movie, but also relating to Hitchcock. Um, uh, she, um, she started off her, uh, career under contract to Warner brothers. Um, and, uh, uh, she, uh, signed a five-year personal contract with Hitchcock in 1957 um, uh, after being in The Wrong Man and was kind of poised to essentially uh, be his next uh, star via, uh, star project where this is part of Hitchcock's both legacy and his uh, dishonor is his obsession with creating the perfect woman. Vera Miles was among those who were in that wheelhouse and was, she was initially considered a successor to Grace Kelly, uh, in this wheelhouse that he dealt with. And, um, two years prior, she put, was put into an episode of Alfred Hitchcock presents. They'll be talking about, but her big thing is she's working through the star system. Like a lot of starlets did at that era where they start off young and they always cast them alongside older actors who were more familiar and the age gap in casting in Hollywood is something that hasn't gone away to this day. Like Johnny Depp's like oh, in his fifties sure. and they'll still put him up against a younger actress. So it's, it definitely is a stark contrast to be like, these two are married and have two children, but it's not uncommon. Unfortunately, um, we, there's a, in the film that you watched, the first Hitchcock film you watched, uh, North by Northwest, the woman who's playing Cary Grant's mother is roughly around her his age, so that's completely yeah. unfair, obviously. <laughs> um, but so and and actually, it's good to point out with Vera Miles since we're talking about her. 
um, as discussed with the Vertigo episode with Will Elder, she was supposed to play the uh, lead that eventually went to Kid Novak in Vertigo, but she got pregnant, and Hitchcock, um, being rather upset, uh, couldn't use her, so he used Kim Novak instead. He basically kept her under contract by not giving her really much work um, until Lila Crane in Psycho, which would be her fulfillment of the contract. Um, and uh, so, and she, you know, she was a woman who held her own against Hitchcock's star-making vehicle. She just wouldn't put up with it um, in a way that, unfortunately, Tippi Hedren um, had to endure a lot more of um, it, to the mental anguish of uh, of both of them. But, you know, I would say that with when it comes to Vera Miles' performance in this film, despite the age gap and the difference and whatnot, I do believe their chemistry. Like, it's not... It's not unfounded. Like Henry Fonda is very good at making you like him, and that kind of seeps into his relationship with Vera Miles. Like their opening banter when they're discussing the dentist bill, you know, it's it's believable. It's not yeah. unfounded. I mean, some and, of the some of the dialogue is kind of like odd, but like right. I was I always felt like Henry Fonda, like I believed, um, like what he was going through, and then uh, yeah, Vera Miles, uh, I. I I thought she did really well with what she had to do. Like she definitely felt natural in that movie. Yeah. For someone who was losing their mind. Right. And it's, and what's interesting is that she's much, except for that one part in the stairwell where I was like, what did she even just say? Like, oh. Is she laughing or is she, <laughs> Oh, is cause she, she's, uh... Oh, she's losing her. Well, cause she's, she's, uh, she's, she's had it because two of their alibis are dead. So she's just like, that whole the ironic laugh of just like, well, whoop de fucking do, we're fucked, like in that kind of laugh, like which I which, but yeah, I couldn't tell if it was like a genuine, like is this a comedy moment or is she no no, uh, it's, it's yeah, a, it, she actually distressed, yeah, that's yeah, the no, only part I was like, that's a weird choice. No, if if anything, it's meant to encapsulate the fact that she's she's being driven insane by not just what her husbands have to go through, but what now she has to go through in order to prove that her husband's innocent. She didn't think that it would be this hard. And, uh, obviously the toll that it takes on not just that situation, but also the family life. Um, and you know, we'll, 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 the spoiler for the ending is, is that the real, uh, burglar is eventually apprehended. Um, and through actually, I will say one of my favorite, silly cop moments in Hitchcock history because it's, it's beautifully constructed for the, for the time, but also in an eternal method um, where, you know, the, the real uh, uh, burglar is caught um, played by a guy who looks like he's on his way to meet the other alien from men in black to discuss the uh, Orion's belt. Um, but um, he's caught, he's brought to the police station. Henry Fonda gets a call saying, Hey, we got the real guy. He's um, he's, uh, fingered by the um uh the women who were earlier accusing uh uh Henry Fonda of the of the deed and he walks out um and they walk side by side and he says you know what you've done to my wife um and but prior to all that prior to all this wonderful setup of execution of like these two people who have inadvertently crisscrossed in each other's lives when the initial when the when the real burglar is brought in 
The cop who arrested and was so convinced of Henry Fonda's guilt walks past him, not even giving it a look. And then he walks outside and he gives the double take. And it's the double take of it was my riff brain went into my uh, my riff tracks brain went into mode. And I was like, <laughs> like, he's like suddenly just figuring it out. <laughs> like, oh, wait a second. That looks like the guy we've been after. <laughs> Um, so, but the consequences of this whole case of a mistaken identity is that Rose has become mentally scarred. The last scene of this movie is Henry Fonda meeting her inside the mental institution where she's been uh, put to, uh, you know, try to recover from all this. And the impression is given that she will not recover from this. Um, and the key thing to take away from this is that, one, Vera Miles blowing it out of the water in this scene because she's basically so despondent that she's internalizing a lot of that mental anguish and providing a uh, a portrayal of exhaustion, which I haven't seen in a Hitchcock movie as we've gone through this series in terms of like what that mental anguish of going through a movie like this puts you through. Um because not even in Psycho, when she's learning everything about her sister's demise in that movie, does she give this kind of performance. Um, but then the film cuts to a title card that says that they eventually, Rose was eventually cured and that they lived happily ever after in Florida. The reality is, is that Rose never fully recovered and she blamed herself for her husband's arrest for the rest of her life. Despite everything that happened and him being acquitted, he still she still blamed herself for it. Um, and the real Chris Ballestrero sued the city for false arrest, asking for five hundred thousand dollars. He settled on a settlement of just seven thousand dollars and he earned twenty two thousand dollars from the film, which went to repaying the loans for Rose's cure. So. This film helped in a weird way to get Rose some medical care. But just looking at the whole process of this being a real story and the cost that the justice system at that time and still to this day has on people who are falsely accused um, of especially these are low income people. We're not talking about like they were like upper class socialites in New York. They're arguing about a three hundred dollar dentist bill and how to pay for it in the beginning of this movie, which I'd argue is relevant to what we deal with in healthcare in this country today. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, this film, uh, uh, it was the final film that he did for Warner Brothers, uh, incidentally, and it completed a contract commitment that um, he had done with uh, two films for Transatlantic Pictures that were released by Warners. And after The Wrong Man, Hitchcock goes back to Paramount, where he fulfills the remainder of that contract with a film called Psycho and basically gets filthy stinking rich off of it. Um, within the reviews of this film for The Wrong Man, they were mixed to negative as well. Um, uh, critics found that the realism was not um, uh, was not uh, convincing, and that the suspense uh, was not in the realm that Hitchcock was known for. Um, uh, the The key review that I found that uh, uh, that kind of pointed out like some of the more negative aspects of the film by Philip K. Schreuer of the Los Angeles Times, who we talked about earlier for I Confess. He said, as drama, unhappily, it proves again that life can be more interminable than fiction. 
So I think it, it, I feel like that people were dismayed by this film because Hitchcock is not giving them the fight of fancy that he's been known to give them. Uh, and so there's an expectation of this film that doesn't hold up to anybody's standards. Um, I'll ask you, Brad, now that we've talked about both of these movies, which one would you prefer over the other if you had to you know, pick one? That's tough. Uh... Or I guess, which one would you want to rewatch again if you were like in a in a bind where you needed to watch something and this was these only these two things were available tied to a chair gun to my head family's <laughs> lives at stake look 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 you've got two fucking choices i confess to the wrong man fucking tell me tell me tell me <laughs> probably the wrong man because it's such it's more of an experiential movie yeah um uh again this is another movie that you could easily remake as like an indie film it's yeah. the Cher Artiste, uh, like, remake today. Uh, but it, it it's, has a similar vibe of, like, a lot of indie filmmakers today where you're kind of just experiencing, like, there's not a lot of dialogue and you're just experiencing someone going through something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that this one has more of a parallel to modern cinema than I Confess does, where I Confess is, I think, more suited to a play. Yeah. Um, and you could... You could convey the same story without the cinematic uh, equivalent. Whereas this is very much like it helps to see what's going on rather than tell it. Yeah. You know, it, it seems like a lot of modern day filmmakers would agree with you because like Martin Scorsese has pointed out to this film, like not just how it's influenced him within the uh, realm of dealing with the Catholic, uh, the, the Catholic elements of guilt and uh, searching for in a uh, search, searching for answers. Um, but he also, uh, he's described in more than one documentary about the certain scenes with him in the prison and um, alluding to the different Catholic symbology within it and the transference of guilt and how that, you know, obviously is a trope that is strewn about Hitchcock's films. And in this film in particular, it is the ultimate transference of guilt. Like as, as we discussed with rear window where it's like the ultimate Hitchcock film in terms of his technique the wrong man is the purest film in terms of the themes that he's the most obsessed with for all the films that he's made uh, that have been labeled as classics or the ones that we go to the wrong man, I think is an under discussed one when it comes to the purest theme of Hitchcock, which is um, innocent man uh, 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 accused of a crime, which is something that permeates through a lot of his films, even in something like North by Northwest, it's still so fantastical and big and bombastic that it's not uh, intimizing the uh, intimiza It's not committing an intimization of the theme of guilt uh, or transference of guilt that Hitchcock puts into this particular film. And I think Henry Fonda perfectly portrays a person who is, you know, being put through a ringer. Which you're right. Today we, when we talk about independent films of the era of maybe like from, from the 90s all the way up to today you know a lot of those films deal with experience and not so much plot-based material like uh you know fruitvale station is a good example um directed by ryan coogler of a person going through his day we experience his life and then by the time we get to the end of that person's life um it makes what's happened to him seem uh, uh re you realize that it's so unjustified and horrible because of what we've seen him go through the day 
in just his typical day. And in the case of The Wrong Man, we have a film where you are shown what happens not just at the end of that system, but also what are the emotions that go through it. And I think there is exposition in this film, but the primary experience of him is mainly told through the camera and not through any dialogue. You could turn the sound off through 60% of this film. It would make complete sense um, in terms of watching a silent film, you know? And his story is more relatable to audiences. Like he's a dad. Um, He's, uh, you know, lower lower middle class whereas the other one um you know it's the story of a, of a priest which not many people are um and like what he has to go through by not revealing information you know that, that's a story that's not as uh you, you can't connect with as much as you know this every man who it, also given the times we're in now where you know the police aren't as trusted as they used to be right um and i like i thought i thought the movie was actually gonna go in the direction of like the police were setting him up Right, they were involved in something, so that's where my head went first. It's weird because the detectives and the way they speak to him give that information. Yeah, like they it it does feel to a certain extent like they're just looking for anybody to pin the crime on, like not to just the the way they act in those opening scenes reminds me of some of the rhetoric used by people during the West Memphis Three trials and that were shown in the documentaries Paradise Lost, where. They're just they're just looking for somebody to pin this on, and this guy fits the description. Yeah, the oh. whole scene with the handwriting, I felt like, you know, if Henry Fonda's character wasn't paying attention, um, you know, the detective could easily be swapping out, you know, oh yeah, this was the first sheet, and this is the second sheet, and this is the third sheet, even though those aren't, um, you know, right. He could he could easily change the order if you're not paying attention. Yeah, and say like, you know this guy's the handwriting we're trying to match is yours because, you know, I'm showing you both of your, your own writing again. Right. And it's what's, what makes this film stand out to me in that, with that detail that you mentioned. So prior to this, you do have, you can have films about crooked cops or cops who are a little too aggressive with interrogation. um, But they generally have to even it out with, well, the good guys have to win. So the cops are the good guys. This is a film I feel like the the wrong man is one of the first films um, amongst like the new uh, the at least within the emergence of fifty cinema that really addresses the reality of the in uh, the, the the paranoia and the fear that one feels when in a police station and in the process based on what he's going through whether it's the handwriting or talking about the alibis or being ID'd by people. Um, without without pushing anybody's uh, moral buttons with the production code, he's alluding to feelings and emotions that then get ex- uh, explained further and elaborated on further in other films that we see where the cops are clearly mistrustful. So, obviously, even even if it's not intentional, Hitchcock is primarily sticking you in the mode of, like, don't trust authority, which is... You know, one of his motifs is that this this fear of authority, if not complete mistrust. And this is another pure example of a theme of his being basically handed to you on a silver platter and saying, here, fucking eat this. Um, And so uh, the recent assessments of this film uh, are much more positive than they were of the era. Um, You know, people across the board love this film and and it's... uh, it's one of those um, films that is like 
people believe should be in the AFI top 100. Uh, it's uh, it's a film that I think people should be much more aware of, and yet it is. It and uh, our earlier film are ones that are relegated to the archive collection on Blu-ray. When I don't know if you were noticing it with watching the copies that I gave you on DVD, Brad, but these prints are not in the best conditions uh, by any stretch because there's still some kind of jumping around and uh, lost pieces of frames in the, within the proceedings. Yeah, it seems like they were taken off of VHS because the movies each ended with the uh, FBI warning that was very much not remastered so right which are ones that they used at the uh tail end of early warner brothers dvds um the the one the wrong man in particular has a lot of jumps in its cuts uh which i find very uh uh sad because i'm sure that they are able to kind of remaster that a little bit better so i mean here's hoping we get some uh more elaborate attention to detail with hitchcock's warner brothers films because there's a lot of classics in there, not as many as the Universal ones, but there's a lot in there. Um, so we'll move right along, though, by going a year back uh, for uh, the discussion of, you know, we've talked a lot about guilt uh, and, uh, and uh, Catholicism and uh, themes, of, uh, themes of mistrusting authority. But if there's one thing you can trust, Brad, and I think you'd agree with me, it's when a host on a television show talks directly to you and he makes you feel like you're part of things. And that was what Alfred Hitchcock did in none other than Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, an anthology series created, hosted, and produced, produced by Alfred Hitchcock uh, that aired between 1955 and 1965. Uh, amongst the creative teams behind this are producers Joan Harrison and Norman Lloyd, who have been talked about to death on this show. Joan Harrison was Hitchcock's assistant in the earlier years and rose through the ranks to produce not only her her own stuff without Hitchcock worked with Hitchcock on many of his classic films but then ended up becoming basically the big spearhead of this show uh, and Norman Lloyd who was an actor in Hitchcock films prior to this and then took on a much more producerial role within the show um, the show consisted of 30 minute episodes uh, within the first run of the series the first seven seasons and then moved to an hour for the final two seasons um the original networks it was on were cbs uh up till 1964 um and uh in between that hitchcock did the show for nbc in 1960 to 1962 and then 64 to 65 so he bounced around the different ones but so within the scope of alfred hitchcock you had said to me prior to me getting you on for this episode that your experience with Hitchcock, if if anywhere, began with the reruns of this show on Nick at Night. But it, it seems like that's been far and away, like you wouldn't really remember any specific details of anything, right? Yeah, no, I, I mostly remember the, uh, I think when they initially premiered it on Nick at Night, they had, um, they had some, like, contests where you had to call, like, you, you had to guess how many deaths there were. Uh, throughout the run of the series oh and then and then oh. like wink martindale uh did the 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 station bumpers and uh it was yeah it was kind of like a, a a telethon type thing oh my god brad brad we should have done that when the show was airing that would have been so cool get all the kids involved be like hey kids get out a pencil and notice all the little easter eggs inside our episode and if you guess them all you win a prize you'll be murdered in the next episode <laughs> 
Uh, that would have been a fun, fun contest for kids. Contests were big in those days. You could do that. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, but yeah, other than that, the most memorable thing is just the the opening and cl- closing bookends of the show with Alfred Hitchcock coming out with his silhouette and then saying something morbid, then cutting co- to commercial, and then uh, you know coming back to the sh- to the episode. Yeah. Would you Would you say that that silhouette was a Shamley silhouette, Brad? <laughs> Hey, I made your logo, so of course I do. It took 17 episodes to get to this point, Brad. I'm clapping for myself. (laughs) Um, So embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, what's um, with a little bit of history on this film? um, When first of all, that theme that you are so always familiar with, which won't be appearing in this episode, you'll know why by the end. but uh, it was uh, it, the the original theme is Charles uh, Gonad's Funeral March of a Marionette, um, and it was suggested as the theme by uh, Hitchcock's longtime musical uh, composer Mar- Bernard Herrmann. Um, and the uh, the episodes primarily began as as Brad said with a monologue, and then you move into the th- uh, the prime episode, um, and the. Uh, the the key thing about Alfred Hitchcock presents is that it's uh it's a it's an anthology series and this is something that has become a little bit more popular today um, through the means of Netflix and uh, also things created by Ryan Murphy where he doesn't do it episode by episode but each season of American Horror Story is essentially a different story even if they're tangentially connected to one another in different ways they're essentially different stories. Um, and Black Mirror, obviously, it kind of influenced a lot by the Twilight Zone, but you you can't not draw a little bit of inspiration from something like Alfred Hitchcock Presents when it comes to any form of mystery story happening week by week where the stories are different. Um, and for the episodes that I selected for you, I wanted to get two that Hitch directed because uh, I, I figured that you should see what he also is able to do with television. And the first one we watched uh, was none other than Revenge, which is the pilot episode um, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and um, starring Vera Miles from The Wrong Man. Uh, This was her first interaction working with Hitchcock. This is how she ends up working with him down the line. Um, Also starring Ralph Meeker. Uh, The the episode primarily deals with a woman uh, who lives with her husband at a trailer park and she's essentially accosted while the husband is away at work and the only identifying uh, uh, marks that she knows of the man is that he was he was tall and dark and wore a gray suit and so she's um, basically incoherent and just very very despondent because of the events and as they're driving into town one day um, to see if they can locate the person she points one of the people out who is in a gray suit tall and dark the husband pulls over, goes and kills him, comes back out, gets in the car with her. And then as they're driving along, she says, there he is, that's him. And so the reveal is that she's so despondent, she's associating anybody on the street with the person that attacked her. Um, so I guess I want to ask for your impression of this episode. So you've seen Hitchcock cinematically through four different films. Did you find this episode of older TV to be a little bit more compelling or even like different than any other episode of TV you might say from like the Twilight Zone of anything you've watched from that Nick and Night era? No, my uh, like right away, um, 
I don't know, th- this whole episode, again, I, I called it from, like, the beginning of, like, where it was going to go, and I, I couldn't tell if it was because, well, maybe because you saw it as a kid, um, subconsciously, you know where it's going, but, um, uh, like, especially once she points out the first guy, I was like, okay, I, I see where their story's going to be, um, he's going to injure the wrong guy, and then, like, the, the button on the story is going to be that, oh, she's just accusing everybody. Um, oh, but by the way, before I forget, Vera Miles looks so much like Jenna Malone. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, I had to look it up and see if they were related. And uh, so far to know. Yeah. Well, but, keep, um, keep digging, go to ancestry.com. You'll find out that info. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like the opening scene, like their whole relationship together wasn't like, I, I got fixated on him constantly saying, well, I can't stay. I have to go to work. And then he kept distracting himself and slowing his like trajectory to work down. Like, uh, <laughs> he's just know, like, well, she, I don't really have to go today. You know, there might be a yeah, quarantine. Like she she wants him to know. stay in the bedroom. And then he's like, no, I got to go. And then he goes and like has a whole breakfast thing. And then she's trying to talk to him. And then he's like, no, sorry, I got to go. And then he stops and talks to the neighbor because he's in such a hurry. Yeah. Um, so I was just, I was sitting there thinking, like, this seems really sloppy for someone who's supposed to be as meticulous as uh, Hitchcock. So, well, what what's interesting about that? The fact that to me, because what well, the thing that I notice whenever I watch Alfred Hitchcock presents is that I always have to lower my expectations on the um, the visual spectrum. I stand by the fact that I believe that this and the Twilight Zone to me are the best shot television series of their time um uh this even goes beyond something like star trek because as innovative as star trek is there's also things about it that are a more stagey um but it's still a you know a, a show that innovates camera movement and this one in particular it's interesting that because they are television 30 minute television episodes hitchcock's not getting the same budget as he would for a film so for what he has to work with yeah, I thought it, was, it still felt very similar to the movies. Again, in that time, you know, special effects and set construction aren't very elaborate. Yeah. Uh, but they, you know, they, they have like B-roll of stuff that's not on a stage, you know, when they come and go from place to place. And then the driving scene is much like they did in movies with the rear projection. So Well, and that's not even just a, an old Hollywood technique. That's also a Hitchcock trope. Hitchcock used a lot of rear projection, and he used it mainly to control the elements around him. Hitchcock did not like working on location. He did not like doing anything really outside the studio if he could get away with it. And those process shots are uh, brought all the way into his final film, Family Plot, where by the time you get to that film, they are very unconvincing by the standards of the era that he's filming in. Um, with this with this particular story, what I what I appreciate primarily about it is is that it's uh it's not reaching for any um uh humorous heights like the next like the other one we'll talk about although both have their merits in their own way but this one kind of lands on it, it it ends on not an ambiguous note but like a dreadful note like a, a truly dreadful note like yeah this guy just committed murder and now he's realizing the wrong that reason. He just, yeah exactly like there was no reason for him to do it and the only thing that brings any levity out of it is Hitchcock going like, well, it wasn't that fucking special. <laughs> um, 
what did you think of the openings uh, uh opening on this particular one since this is the first episode where he's just kind of like going like here's what here's what this shit's gonna be and you're gonna fucking deal with it <laughs> Oh, like his actual intro? Yeah, he's just like, I will not... He's just basically explaining what the show's going to be for the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't realize this was the uh, pilot until you said it. Yeah. Um, which, again, uh, reinforces my like my feelings about the whole episode in general. Was it felt like... It did feel like a pilot where they threw something together. Yeah. Because, it, like, the other frustrating thing about the whole construction of the story is, you know, you've only got 30 minutes, probably actually more like 25 to tell this story and i'd say 15 minutes are the setup in her waking up in the trailer and them having breakfast and then him going to to work uh and the one part where the neighbor comes over and talks to her while she's sunbathing and like uh, like hangs on a shot of her legs the whole time yeah i it feels like a setup to something with the neighbor um but it's just misdirection because she doesn't figure into it at all in fact she uh totally betrays him by not doing what he asked her to do and watch her the whole time. So yeah, I, I thought it would have been stronger if they brought her back as like somehow involved in uh, what went down. Cause I thought like maybe she was attracted to her. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause when I saw that first step with this episode for the first time, my impression of this is like, she's going to be important to this story. Right. And then she's not. Um, yeah. And so within that it's, it is it is it does have the pilot feel to it. I I'm enamored by the back half of it. The beginning half with the setup, I feel like it doesn't lead to anything by comparison. So it's like if nothing else, it's a good presentation to a network of like, well, we could tell a suspenseful story in 30 minutes or something of the Alfred Hitchcock nature. Something that if you drew it out to 2 hours would be a Hitchcock movie, which I could see this being a Hitchcock movie that he would have made um, and probably would have been the most eternally fascinating one of them all, especially considering the ending we get. What's interesting, yeah. what's interesting about it and I find is, is that this is the early days of television, much like the early days of cinema where until the production code and the Hayes code come around, cinema was able to get away with a lot more stuff than you'd imagine, um, whether it was you know sexuality content or violent content television had a had a wild wild west vibe to it in its own way and in this particular one you'll notice um and in the second one that we're going to discuss they don't end happily nobody wins at the end there's no higher moral victory so what's something i remember from the series like as a kid was that they all had some kind of downer ending (laughs) yeah which you know you you also see carried over into something like twilight zone where twilight zone the its bread and butter is bet you didn't see that coming and oh isn't that depressing <laughs> like <laughs> yeah as it should be I, I feel like for this type of series you should feel uneasy after watching it exactly well and especially if you're you know getting introductions by hitchcock it's got to complete that motif you know it's just like look i'm droll and funny and i'm gonna give you something droll and sad <laughs> yeah you're not tuning in for happy endings you're you're looking for twisted tales no so. no no watch the jack benny program for a happy ending that's a fun show fun fun show jack benny what a comedian haha <laughs> um but uh anyway but the, so a couple seasons in we get the episode that i think is considered amongst fans of the show and of alfred hitchcock in general to be the uh the the peak of Alfred Hitchcock presents, which is Lamb to the Slaughter, uh, 
uh, uh, from 1958 uh, from season three, episode 28, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. The writer of this uh, story and teleplay is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory's Roll Doll. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, did not see that coming. Well, here's the but thing. But I get though. it. I get it. Yeah, exactly. Because as soon as you think Roll Doll, you think children's author. And then you think Roll Doll again, and you go, oh, terrifying children's author. <laughs> Yeah, the children's author who hated children. Yeah, exactly. And amongst other things, in, in Roald Dahl's cinematic history, one thing that is noted is that he uh, helped create what would become Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and among the additions uh, that uh, was stick, stuck into that film was the Child Snatcher, which is a terrifying character if you ever watch Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, but Roald Dahl also, obviously, Charlie the Chocolate Factory, a bunch of kids are punished because they don't listen to Willy Wonka's instructions. Uh, or in the witches where they're all turned into mice, um, the BFG with a lot of chaos going on. So this story, this sort of story, in the span of thirty minutes, we get uh, ost- ostensibly like a good murder story with a a concise, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's it's kind of like the setup of a joke. You tell the beginning of the joke, which is the murder. You have the midpoint of the joke, which is her trying to hide the evidence and hide the fact that she killed her husband with this lamb chop. And then the punchline is, is that these cops are eating that lamb chop, that lamb and going like the, the, you know, the, the murder weapons probably right under our noses is one of the lines in this uh, story. And, you know, the wife starts to giggle because she knows what's been done. (laughs) So, um, you know, yeah, for, for both, for, for both these episodes, it's painfully apparent that the second halves of each of them, that's the idea that was in the writer's room. You know, the yeah. first one is what if there was a husband um, and his wife just started accusing guys uh, of abusing her and he took out the wrong guy. And then the second one is, you know, what if the wife killed her husband with the lamb chop? Yeah. And how do we get there? Yeah. And I think that's the weakest part is that of each of those episodes, how did we get there? Whereas right. the punchline is, you know, what drew them to making the episode. Would you, would you say that the, setup for this one is a little stronger than the first one. Cause I'd think that the stre- setup for lamb to the slaughter is much better than the setup for revenge a little bit, but, but not much. Um, the husband is very, I don't know. I feel like that whole argument could have been more interesting. Um, yeah, it's a little, it's a little more basic. I mean, and obviously we, we have evolved in an era where domestic squabbles are much more elaborate. Um, and sometimes they're close to two and a half hours with Adam Driver yelling at Scarlett Johansson. So, <laughs> yeah, just um, a, a, a police officer, you know, taking like coming home, like an exhausted police officer coming home and getting himself like an alcoholic drink, and then just <laughs> proclaiming like I'm leaving you. Um, yeah, what I appreciated about it in terms of it being stronger than the setup to Revenge is that it it's toying with a lot more progressive or. Uh, groundbreaking material than um, uh, th- than the revenge one is like the revenge one's a setup that you could easily see coming a mile away. This one's a little bit more detailed. Um, uh, the argument is basic, um, but it but there's details in it. And what's interesting about this one is that it primarily takes place in one location. It's not um, it's not like revenge where there's multiple locations. And so this one in particular has the unenviable task of being 
interestingly shot in a one-room location. And I, I'd have to say, if, if we're going between the two, I think this one is obviously much more well shot because of the limitations it's working in. Which yeah, is, they, the the house has like the kitchen and the garage attachments, so yeah. it's able to break out of the one room a little bit more. Yeah, than Whereas the, uh, the trailer does. Yeah, exactly. Because the trailer is a lot more confining, and this one, like, but this one also has, it's not going out on streets or anything like that. So it's primarily focused in that kitchen, and the visuals are able to kind of draw out the suspense in a way that not every episode of this show tends to do. Um, obviously, not all of these episodes are directed by Alfred Hitchcock. If anything, this was actually a training ground um, uh, kind of a, a show for other directors. Amongst the people who would direct episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents are Robert Stevens, Paul Henry, Herschel Daughtry, Nor- Norman Lloyd doing it, Alfred Hitchcock himself did 17 episodes, Arthur Hiller, James Nielsen, Justin, Justice Addis, John Bram, and notable directors such as Robert Altman, Ida Lupino, Stuart Rosenberg, Robert Stevenson, David Swift, and William Friedkin. William Friedkin, by the way, directed the last episode of this show. So this was not just a uh, a, Hitchcock, a, a Hitchcock playground. This was a place where other people could, you know, stretch their directorial muscles and legs. Um, it's like, like how SNL breeds comedy. Exactly. Yes. Personalities. Yeah. Very much so. And like, and it's and other anthology shows uh, had that similar training ground aesthetic. Steven Spielberg, one of his first directing gigs is for an anthology show that starred Barry, that had Betty Davis in that particular episode. So he's, so a, a lot of people benefited from that early experience, especially within the Universal lot and whatnot. And this show, primarily, Hitchcock does it um, as uh, is a it's a money machine for him. He's able to make a lot of money off of this and then start gaining a lot more control. The the ultimate control he gets between this television show and his movie career is after Psycho becomes a hit and he reaps most of the profits because Paramount decided that they weren't going to have any ownership in Psycho for fear of uh, of any um, uh, recompense from releasing something like Psycho at that time. So Hitchcock financed it himself, reaped all the financial rewards. So between this and the show, he becomes immensely powerful. Um, and these monologues uh, were primar- that he becomes so famous for. And really, I think, when you think of Alfred Hitchcock, if you're like you and don't have a reference for his cinema, you know him as a guy who introduces a TV show primarily. I, I, I was aware of the show, but I, I, I clearly understood that his uh, filmography was... Uh what he's best known for. Right. But, but that legendary showman status, like it's one of the obvious traits about his, uh, his personality that we, that we think of when we think of Hitchcock today, we think, we think the movies he made and we think of those intros. Those are like the two big things that pop out in your head. Um, and I'm actually, uh, learning more about how, because of those intros, I, I was assumed he was like the, like a, a cult, like, creepy director but apparently he was uh much more of a uh avant-garde director like he didn't direct his movies like a lot of people in this system he he was kind of more laid back and uh like he knew he'd wanted but he wasn't like uh like getting on anyone's case about like specifics yeah well it's um it's 
it, it's kind of a duality to that because there's uh there's the notion that because his camera is absolute, his actors are able to do whatever they want in it so long as they are adherent to the camera and what its function is going to be, not just in that scene they're in, but in the next shot or the next frame or the next take. So there's that, but also he is much more experimental. Hitchcock is a director that was not afraid to step outside the boundaries uh, amongst the films that get that is that he in spellbound, which we'll talk about in a future episode. He, he's trying to work with Dolly and using Salvador Dolly type nightmare imagery. And unfortunately a lot of that got cut down to like two minutes of footage in the final film, but he was not afraid to kind of go out there and beyond vertigo is a film that I think you'll, visually appreciate because of how much it's doing with visuals uh even the wrong man and i confess are dealing with different visual schemes that you wouldn't see in a film of that era um, especially the wrong man i feel because it's dealing with that experience of henry fonda in there and when it comes to thematic content as evidenced in lamb to the slaughter um which incidentally comes out um uh, comes out two years before Alfred Hitchcock does something like Psycho, it's already setting the template of breaking the ground for flat-out homicide on screen in a way that has never been done before. Now, in the case of Lamb for the Lamb to the Lamb to the Slaughter, it's uh you know it's a lamb it's it's a leg of mutton that she bashes his head in with and then it's served to the cops. But that is kind of a gateway point to then leading to well, can I show somebody being stabbed on screen? And that's how you get something like Psycho, which then breeds arguably an entire genre. So he was not afraid to step outside those boundaries and really kind of get the uh, um, uh, uh, get the audience, uh, get the audience's blood pumping and throw something in there that they wouldn't expect. Yeah. But um, so but as with anything that Hitchcock has done, eventually uh, it something runs its course, whether it's his uh, film career and his uh, ability to work within the studio system um, for Alfred Hitchcock presents. Um, it uh, eventually ran its course um, and uh, it, it, it continues to be popular in television syndication, but this is as Hitchcock is getting older demands on him. Don't uh, require that he, you know, focus his energy solely on the movies. Um, and, uh, but this film had a revival in 1985, um, and uh, it was uh, colorized footage of Hitchcock from the original series to introduce the segments, um, and it was a big hit, uh, and it debuted in the fall of 1985, uh, but it only lasted one season before NBC canceled it, and it was produced for three more years by USA Net Network. Um, this version of Alfred Hitchcock, which is the presenter of... Uh, you know, uh, of these stories and introducing people to macabre uh, tales gets kind of uh, offshooted into other media as well. Um, you know, w when we think of Alfred Hitchcock that, and that imagery of the silhouette and whatnot, it's plastered all over the place. He did a, in 1962, Golden Records released an album of six ghost stories titled Alfred Hitchcock Presents Ghost Stories for Young People. Um, and it, and it, it's just mainly one of many things that Alfred Hitchcock stuck his name on. Now he introduces each of these stories um, uh, and then, you know, re re does a little joke here and there. Um, and then the ghost stories are told by an actor named John Allen. 
Um, and so the, the this is like a, a th- an instance where Hitchcock can make a tidy buck off of putting his name on something. Branding, that image branding is something we don't see really become prevalent until you can slap Star Wars on anything and sell it for a hefty price. So Hitchcock's kind of a forefront in that methodology of like, hey, like advertising, merchandising, that thing that, you know, Mel Brooks makes fun of in Spaceballs. And the show goes on to influence other stories, not the least of which is that there's an episode of the show from 1960 called Man from the South, which features Steve McQueen and Peter Lorre. The story involved with that is, is that uh, a man bets that is uh, bets his finger, his entire finger, that he can start his cigarette lighter ten times in a row, and he makes a bet. This bet with a man from the South who likes to gamble heavily. Um, this particular episode will also be remade with John Houston playing the gambler and Danny Houston, his son, playing the guy who agrees to the bet. This story would then be later adapted by none other than Quentin Tarantino for his segment in the anthology film Four Rooms and his segment, he changed it from Man from the South to Man from Hollywood. Now, Quentin Tarantino gets a lot of flack for ripping off other people. I'd say the only time it's incredibly obvious or like absolutely like flat out it is taking from something else, it is for Four Rooms because he doesn't even try to hide the plot or the title from it. The difference is, is that Bruce Willis is in the background in his segment. <laughs> so, um, so the, this, uh, uh, this show had an immense, um, amount of popularity over time and cemented Hitchcock's legacy. Um, and that's going to do it for this episode, Brad. So I've basically taken you on the Hitchcock journey. Does it compel you to watch any more Hitchcock films? Uh, sort of. <laughs> I try. I, 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 yeah, I, I want to see his other films, but it's, it's not like, oh, I got to do this tomorrow. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get around to it. Brad, you're in quarantine. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it sounds like Vertigo. Like, I'm interested to see the visual style of it. Yeah. Um, and then apparently Rope, I should have uh, checked out a while ago because of the the way it's made. Well, is um, that, are you sure that's the only reason you should have watched it, Brad? Not not one actor in particular. I'm not going to mention his name, but it's me, Jimmy yeah. Stewart. <laughs> I, I saw I saw you in uh, Five Goes West. I, I got it. Oh yeah, yeah. My my wonderful portrayal of Wyatt Burp. Uh, yep. I I was I got into character for that one. I, I I ran around on all fours for an entire week to get into character for that one. I'm sure you did, old man. Uh, um, yeah, so, yeah, like I said, I respect his place in, in film history, cinema history. Yeah, but well, and it was not to put you on the spot to have you on this episode. If anything, I wanted to, primarily why I wanted you on uh, was to introduce you to some Hitchcock films that you might not even give a second thought to watch, but also to bring you into the fold on this because you now complete the cycle of the group of people who openly welcomed me into your group to podcast week after week and i only wanted to the only way i could ever think of repaying that on a tangible level um uh within a show context is to have you all on board to talk about it in some form or fashion so yeah but, well but, I, but, i'm honored to be asked to do it um you know <laughs> I, I just hope i didn't make the worst episode ever but uh we'll we'll also, see we'll see brad we'll see yeah <laughs> it might be um, I bet like all the Hitchcock fans are just pulling their hair out listening to me. 
I think I think also the hesitancy to like watch his films is like I like I said earlier, I feel like a lot of film students really ape his material um pretty closely and I kind of feel like me having not seen his stuff, I'm immune to that. So like it makes me feel like I can be more of an original filmmaker if I don't you know study his work. So it's funny that you bring that up because in the last episode Marshall and I talked about how essentially Hitchcock's failures or where he, you know, steps out of line are important for people in the in the here and now to take note of is like even if somebody who is regarded as a master makes a mistake here and there. What's interesting you're bringing up kind of the inverse of that which is just like wow, he's setting a template that other filmmakers follow so it, if anything it motivates you to try to think outside the box which in a way brad is something hitchcock would encourage you to do exactly i'm following yeah. his other template yeah even so. though even though i kind of stayed in my same box for the last couple of films but i i broke ground brad i broke ground you have no idea say how you much... stayed in the same box since you died and he's in a coffin somewhere oh you did a good that was a good we gotta get you on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Do you have a DeLorean? Do you have a thing that'll <laughs> help you travel back in time, Brad? We'll get you on the show. You can be what? you can be a uh, uh you can uh, I'll do that Steve McQueen thing all over again. You can be Steve McQueen. Fuck Steve McQueen. <laughs> My episode's the director who died like forty years ago. <laughs> hey, this is about <laughs> me, isn't it? <laughs> Um, but that's going to do it for the Shamley Silhouette this week. You can find more uh, episodes of the Shamley Silhouette at realnerdspodcast.com, where Brad dutifully puts this uh, show up once in, uh, w- once uh, once it's finished. <laughs> um, <laughs> Whenever I get around to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're going to be seeing the episodes coming out a little bit more frequently um, uh, via the website first and then on the feed down the line. Um, and uh, we'll work our way towards the final episode with our guest Adam Roach from Secret History of Hollywood. We're going to tease that because uh, it's a fun reveal. Um, but until next time, good night. Good night.